Now, tonight I'm going to do this a little bit different. I'm, I'm going to be a- answering five questions, or all that I could get through tonight, but we're going to do this for a while because there's so many questions, people. I've gotten the best questions and the most questions I've ever gotten for a Ask a Question Wednesday night. I mean, good ones, too. So uh, it's going to take a few weeks to get through them, uh, and, and I believe it's going to be really, really good. I want to clear out cobwebs in your head. I want, to, I want the shadows to be chased away. I want you to have confidence in the Word of God and in the God of the Word. And I want you to be on a firm foundation. I want you growing into the maturity, the fullness of the stature of Christ. And, you know, I think all of us are walking around with some questions. They just kind of, sometimes they're not that big a deal, but sometimes they're like a worm that turns. And if we don't get them answered, they kind of haunt us and really can, um, can even undermine your faith if you don't get some answers. So it's going to be really good. I think we're going to have some fun too. I'm really actually going to be talking about dinosaurs tonight. I'm not a paleontologist, but I'm going to talk about them. And, and I'm doing something different. I'm not going to read the question. Greg Harrison is going to read the questions and I'm going to answer them. You won't see him, you will hear him. He has a good voice, and, I, and it occurred to me standing there, you know, just a little variety. I'm going to have Greg read the questions. So how many of you are ready for some go ahead and ask? Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word lives. It's powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now tonight, Lord, as we get together to answer some questions straight from the Bible, Bible answers to tough questions. Lord, be with us, and thank you that your spirit is here, the great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost of the living God, the counselor, the illuminator of the word. And Lord, we just pray your blessing on it now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. I don't hug anybody, but turn to your neighbor and shout to them. Good to see you tonight. All right. There we go. And I want to tell the folks that are watching online, and probably more than usual, and it's so good to have you here with us uh, tonight online. And I want to encourage you to pray about getting back, because Sunday we had about half our normal congregation, which we were very encouraged over, because we thought it was going to be less. So we're crawling back, creeping back, coming back, God's bringing us back, and I'm looking forward to seeing you face-to-face You pray about it and uh, let God lead you. Amen? Good to have you. All right, we're going to deal, like I said, with five questions tonight. And I'm going to let Greg go ahead and let's, let's look at the first one. Okay, Pastor Jeff, question number one. Is it wrong to pray for God's enemies to be taken out of the way? I've been praying that. How many of you ever prayed for an enemy to be taken out of the way? Come on, tell the truth. How many of you ever wish you could go back to the Old Testament and just do the eye for an eye thing just once? Come on. That's a good question. It's a really good question. And I think we've all experienced that. You know, we live in a world of offenses. Uh, We all get hurt. We get offended. We get angry. Um, People do us wrong. Uh, Sometimes we get betrayed. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's not a pretty thing that we experience sometimes. And you know what? A lot of the times we experience that in churches. Matter of fact, there's a lot of people 
maybe some watching right now uh, that are not in church anymore because you got hurt in church. Somebody wronged you, and you didn't know how to respond, and so you, you let the hurt drive you away. Well, that's kind of what they're asking here. But when you're hurt or when you actually have an enemy, somebody's out to hurt you on purpose. Somebody has just decided, I don't like you. I'm going to go for your jugular. I'm going to make life miserable for you. I'm, I'm going to do what I can to, to, to bring pain to your life. An enemy, a real enemy. Well, let me answer that. In the Old Testament, it was common for God's people to pray what we call imprecatory prayers. Everybody say imprecatory. Now, imprecatory comes from the word imprecation, which means literally to pray a curse on. Okay? So an imprecatory prayer is one where prayer is literally made to God for his judgment to fall on one's enemies. And you know, I've got an enemy, Lord, and I'm literally praying for you to lower the boom on them. Bring fire down from heaven, consume them, hurt them, do something bad to them. I'm going to give you some examples of David's imprecatory prayers because David prayed some major imprecatory prayers. Listen to this one. Let death take my enemies. Everybody say that's, that's calling for a curse. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave. Oh, David. Listen to this one. Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. You didn't know this was in the Bible, did you? These were Psalms. Uh, how about this one? Psalm 69, 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Wow. Listen to Psalms 109, verse 9. May his children, that is the his being my enemy, may my enemy's children be fatherless, and his wife, a widow. You didn't know that David could pray that way, did you? Those are imprecatory prayers. Now, David lived under the old covenant. It's so important that we learn to distinguish between the old covenant and the new. And there are many things in the Old Testament that no longer apply to you and me. Because we're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. Moses had written... Uh, and whoever causes an injury to a neighbor must receive the same kind of injury in return. Then he said, and this is out of Leviticus 24, then he said, broken bone for broken bone, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now that was the old covenant. So we must understand that when David was praying these kinds of prayers, he was under the guidance and the instruction of the old covenant. And so, Lord, he's praying, Lord, as they have done to me, do the same to them. But then Jesus came along, and Jesus changed things under the new covenant. Jesus said, you have heard the law that says the punishment, now he's quoting Leviticus, the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So there's Leviticus, and he's quoting Moses, and now Jesus changes it. And he says in verse 39 of Matthew chapter 5, But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now he said a few verses later in verse 43, You have heard the law, the old covenant, that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Okay, how many of you can say, I kind of like that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That goes with my flesh, right? Okay, but look what he said. He said, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you're going to be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And then once more in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. So everybody say with me, do good. Bless. Pray for. Now that's what Jesus said to do with enemies. So let me say it again. Do good. Bless those. And pray for them. Now, my flesh doesn't like one of those words, right? No, no, my flesh likes Moses because it just makes sense that we would do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But see, Jesus was teaching us how not to come under the tyranny of an offended, bitter spirit. That's what he's teaching us because Jesus knew what an offended, bitter spirit will do. Hebrews expanded on it and said, look, if you let a root of bitterness grow down into your soul, it's going to spring up and it's going to defile many people, not just you, but the repercussions of your bitterness are going to go out like a rock dropped on a quiet pond. And those ripples of your bitterness are going to go out and touch every bank of that pond. In other words, your whole circle of people are going to be affected by your bitterness. So I have always believed that Jesus taught, one of the reasons he taught this was so that we would not fall prey to a bitter spirit and be filled with hate because if we're filled with bitterness and hate, we cannot enjoy the presence of God. All right? So Paul the Apostle echoes the same thing. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Everybody say don't curse them. Right? So... Pray that God will bless them. Then in verse 17 of Romans 12, he says, never pay back evil with more evil. So don't be thinking as they did to me, I'm going to do to them. They did that to me, so I'm going to get them. He, he goes on in verse 19, dear friends, never take revenge. Now here's the key. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Now, what he's telling us is this. You and I get offended, all right? Here we are. We get offended. Somebody really does do us wrong. It's not our imagination. They stick us in the back. They do something, say something, and we have really, truly been wronged. Now, when we're wronged, we have a choice every single time. We can either get revenge, We can. We, and revenge comes in many forms for believers, all right? We can give them the look from across the sanctuary. The, the, the knife's coming out of your eyes. Look, we can go out and gossip against them and try to hurt them in the eyes of others. And that's a form of revenge. We, we can, we can, oh, uh, listen, people do all kinds of things. We can try to get them fired from their job. We, we, we can, we can think of ways and Christians usually get more creative because we're supposed to be spiritual and not do these kinds of things. So we hide it, or we disguise revenge under many different masks. But we get revenge. We can get revenge, or watch this, we can get out of the way and let God deal with it. Because listen to me, God saw it. God saw what they did. God saw how they hurt you. 
God saw that it was malicious or uh, had a wrong motive to it. God saw it and God sees it. And the choice is ours. We can either get in the flesh and go to Moses and go for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and get our revenge. But the deal is, have you ever noticed if you took revenge, it never satisfies? Because you always want to take more. And you want to get more and you want to get more. No. But when we get out of the way, it says in another version, give place to wrath. That means here's God, he sees it, and if we will respond the way Jesus said and pray for them, bless them, do not let a bitter spirit land on you and grow in you and come up out of you, but forgive. You say, well, Jeff, they don't deserve forgiveness. Neither did you and neither did me. When God forgave me, I didn't deserve it, and neither did you. And here's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, God has forgiven you a universe of sin. So you can forgive others a world of sin or a city of sin or a town. of. In other words, God forgave you a million dollars worth of sin. You can forgive a hundred dollars worth. Because folks, here's what Jesus taught. Others can never do to us what our sin did to God. What did our sin do to God? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his own son to die on a cross, shed his innocent blood so that the wrath and and the justice of God could be satisfied for our sin. So he watched his own only begotten son be nailed to that tree, be abused by men, and die with with our iniquity on him, that's how much our sin touched God. Now, nobody can hurt us on that level. So he says, as God forgave you a million bucks worth of sin, you forgive others a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 because they'll never do to you what we did to him. Amen? Amen? Amen. So... Paul says, get out of the way and let God handle it. I've noticed that if I do get out of the way and forgive and move down the road, and folks, I'll be honest with you, most of the time, or at least a good deal of the time, I forgive to keep my own self free. I will say, I forgive, Lord, so that I can stay free. And you say, well, Jeff, I don't feel like forgiving. I've never felt like forgiving. You have a mouth, you have a tongue, you can say the words, I forgive. And sometimes it goes like this, I it's hard to get out. Forgive them. And then you say it again, and you say it again, and you say it again, and you say it again. And something will begin to break in you and release in you and get freed up in you because no person on earth is worth yours or my walk with God. No one. All right. So I'll forgive to stay free. I mean, I do. I I do it all the, well, not all the time, but I do it fairly regularly when I feel the need. I will say in the presence of God, I forgive them because I want to be free. I don't want anything hindering God's blessing on my life. Amen. And 
when I react rightly and respond rightly the way Jesus said, then God, it opens the way for God to himself deal with them. And it may take a week. It may take years. They may never get right with God. But when you get out of the way and respond rightly, then God begins to deal with them himself. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. It's not yours. I will repay. Everybody say, I will repay. Now, that's a promise. That's not like a promise to you. I will repay, says the Lord. So get out of the way and let God. So while we pray for God to hinder evil people, I think that's okay. Or pray that he'll stop the evil actions of people. That would fall in the realm of spiritual warfare. But I don't see a place under the new covenant for us to pray imprecatory prayers upon others. Amen? All right, next question. Here's a question that bothers me often. Although my faith is very strong, why are bad things and suffering allowed to happen to innocent children? That's one of the great questions uh, of all time. Uh, most atheists and agnostics will throw that question at you right off the bat. The general argument that atheists and agnostics and, and Christians that are struggling in their faith uh, will make is this. If God is good and he's benevolent, he would not permit innocent people to endure suffering and pain. That's the argument. But the Bible reveals two things about God. God is good and God does allow suffering. Now, how do you reconcile those two things? First, let's just start at the beginning. There's nobody who's truly innocent. There's not. In that there is nobody without sin. Romans 3.23 tells us we're all sinners. David said, I was born in sin. I was shaped in iniquity. When you and I were born, we were born in sin. That's why Jesus said, you've got to be born two times. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're found. Born once, you're in sin. Born twice, you're forgiven. Born once, you're going to hell. Born twice, you're going to heaven. Born once, you're blind. Born twice, you see. Amen? Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're found. Jesus said, all of you are in sin. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. All of us have sinned. Isaiah said, we've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. We've all walked away from God. We've all broken his law. All of us. And not just that, but we were born carrying Adam's sin. We were born with a fallen nature. Now, there's a lot of teaching going on around there, around our culture right now, everybody, that says that we're basically good. People are basically good. We're, we're, we're basically just wonderful people. All right. We are valuable. We have great value to God because the greatest currency that could ever be spent to redeem us from our sin was the blood of the lamb. So we have high value. But listen, we are born in sin. Not only not only with Adam's sin, but we're born with a bent to sin. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. You don't have to teach a little kid to look at you in the face and smart off to you, do you? You don't have to teach a little child to be selfish, do you? What, what are we always doing as parents? We're trying to teach them to be good. Well, if they were born naturally good, why are we always having to teach them how to be good? 
because they're not born naturally good. How many of you can say, I know I wasn't born naturally good? Because how many of you broke God's laws early on, right? So we don't need uh, somebody to say, now here's how you break God's laws. Oh no, we're really good at it all on our own. So there's no one truly innocent. The Bible is crystal clear that the result of sin is death. There would be no death if there had been no sin. And this death has pervaded all creation. Everything dies. I hate it. I really do. But everything dies. That's the downside to getting pets. Because they're eventually going to die. And I hate that. I really do. But everything dies. Plants die. Trees die. You know, uh, mammals die, birds die, fish die, we die, everything dies. And why? Because sin entered the world. We've got to get that in our heads. We're under a sin-infested world, a sin-infected world. And the Bible goes on to reveal that sometimes we suffer as a direct result of our own sin. When Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he said this to him. This guy had been crippled, I think it was 32 years. It was a long time, 12 years, 32 years. Anyway, a really long time. And when Jesus healed him, Jesus said this to him. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, right there, Jesus was insinuating that it was somehow sin had brought this on him. He said, don't go sin, don't go live in sin, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus is clearly insinuating that some suffering, not all of our suffering, don't get me wrong because sometimes we suffer and sin has nothing to do with it, but I'm taking you through several causes for suffering. So here's one, our sin can bring incredible suffering, sometimes physical suffering, sometimes soul suffering. We hurt emotionally. Our hearts are broken. Uh, We're shattered on the inside because of our sin. And um, we can hurt spiritually. Sin can actually and does cut us off from God, from the life of God. Uh, If we don't repent and come to Christ, our sin will carry us straight to hell one day. So sin is to be taken very seriously. So Jesus wants us to know that sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. And, and you know, sometimes that's the, the, the hardest suffering to go through because you're knowing, I did this to myself. Man, I hate it because I did this to myself. I'm suffering because of my own stupid mistakes. How many of you know what I'm talking about here? All the rest of you, get that halo off your head. Come on, everybody knows what that's like. How many of you have ever made a mistake and you kicked yourself for a long time over it? Come on, all right. At other times, suffering is caused by the sinfulness of somebody else. Others' sin causes us to suffer. How often we ourselves have suffered from someone else's sin. Babies born to a mother hooked on drugs suffer for the mom's sin. A person's heart is broken through the the sinful unfaithfulness of their spouse. I didn't do anything. He or she was unfaithful and my heart is broken. Their sin has hurt me. A person is maimed or killed by the sin of a drunk driver. There are people every single day that wake up suffering because of somebody else's sin. And sometimes suffering has to do 
with the general fallen nature of our world. And this is what I want us to catch tonight. Our world is fallen ever since the judgment of Adam and Eve. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 8.22. The whole creation has been groaning. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, Paul said the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, what is making the animals, uh, all of God's creation, us, every living thing groan and suffer? What is doing that? The, the, the fall of Adam and sin being on this world. It brings its own suffering. See, sin shattered what God created. Sin broke it. Sin broke the world. And this is what we've got to understand. When I look out there and I see people suffering, I so often say to myself, as even people ask me, why, why is God letting that happen? Why are they suffering that way? And I say, sometimes, you know what, we're suffering because we're in a broken world. We're suffering because we're in a world that has fallen. And it's not perfect. It's not pristine. It's not the way God originally intended it to be. We're waiting for a new world when Jesus returns and sets up the millennial kingdom. And then there will be no more predatory behavior, no more carnivorous activity, creature upon creature. Uh, But the lion will lay down with the lamb and we will have peace on earth. Jesus will rule the world with a scepter of righteousness out of Jerusalem. It's going to be a time of great, incredible peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And I'm looking forward to that day because Jesus is the only one that can fix Humpty Dumpty. And Humpty Dumpty is our world. Natural disasters, food and water shortages, violence, disease, and other problems in the world are ultimately all the result of sin. So when you think about it, suffering actually confirms the Bible's testimony about the sobering reality of sin and what it's done to the human race. This is the testimony of the Bible. And my worldview, as much as lies within me, is formed through the lens of Scripture. When I look at this broken world, I say, it's fallen. When I look at the suffering, I say, it's because of sin. But then I also look up and say, soon and very soon. We're going to see the king. And King Jesus is going to fix what the devil and sin broke. Now, let me give you a thought before I go to the next question. Here's a thought. The most innocent person to ever suffer was Jesus Christ on the cross. We talk about the innocent suffering. Why does God allow the innocent children, innocent adults, and people to suffer for other people's sins and, and all the disease and all the, the heartache that is in this world? Why does God allow that? Well, Think of this, the most innocent person to ever live was Jesus Christ. He didn't have Adam's sin because he wasn't born of man. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, not by a man. So Adam's sin was not passed to him. And then Jesus never sinned, for he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus was completely and totally and consummately and thoroughly innocent. There wasn't one thing the devil could accuse him of because he was pure, sin-free. And yet he died on the cross. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God 
2 Corinthians 5, 21. So God shows his love, his grace, his mercy in the midst of our suffering by sending his son to suffer and die for us. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, his resurrection, and becoming Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and the Lord of our redemption. For the joy set before him, he endured the pain and agony of the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So folks, yes, there's suffering in this world and yes, God allows it, but something else God does. Listen, God sends grace in the midst of our suffering. Paul was suffering. I'm speaking on this this Sunday. Paul was suffering. He said, Lord, remove this thorn from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in the weakness of your suffering. So what we can know as believers is that even when we suffer, it is redemptive suffering. God is going to work it together for our good. Good. He's going to use it to build Jesus Christ in us. There's always a redemptive aspect of suffering in the life of a believer. So we need not doubt that God is with us during times of suffering. He does not delight in our suffering, nor is he the author of our suffering. And he does allow us to suffer, but rather than doubt him, we can trust in his love and see ourselves identifying with Christ who suffered before returning to the eternal joy of the heavenly father. So my answer is, yes, there is suffering. And yes, sometimes it seems very unfair but I know that God hears prayer and God sends grace and God allowed his own son in the midst of our suffering to die for us. And on the cross, God was shouting to the whole world. I love you. I love you enough to send my only son and he's there for you. So come boldly to the throne of grace that you might obtain mercy and find the grace to help you in the hour of need. Amen. 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 Let's go to the next question. God created man, but how was God created? God was never created. He is and always has been and always will be. That's a great question. A lot of people have asked me that question. Well, hey, you're talking about God and he made everything. Well, who made him? The answer is nobody because God has always been. Listen carefully. This is a mind twister. It's a mind bender. It's very hard to conceptualize. But here's the truth. God is, he always has been, and he always will be. An uncreated God created everything. An uncreated God created everything. Listen to what God says about himself in Deuteronomy 33, 27. God identifies himself as eternal. He says the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So say with me, he's eternal. Now in Isaiah 40, 28, he is called everlasting. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary. He doesn't get tired. His understanding is inscrutable. 
This verse is telling us God's nothing like you. You get tired. How many of you got tired today? How many of you are tired right now? Right? Yeah, look at that. But you know what? God wants us to know I'm not like you. I'm nothing like you. I made you. I don't ever get tired. I don't ever sleep. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, the psalmist said. He's always working. While you're asleep at night, he's working on your behalf. All right? So he doesn't get tired. He doesn't get hungry. He doesn't grow weary. And he's everlasting. He's eternal. He's everlasting. This is what God testifies about himself. Psalms 103, verse 17, we're told that his love is from everlasting to everlasting. So as far back as you can reach, a million years, a billion years, a trillion years, quadrillion years, as far back as you can reach, he's there. As far forward as you can project yourself, billions and trillions of years into the future, he's there. God doesn't inhabit time. God created time for us to live in. But God doesn't live in time. The prophet Daniel spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. And he said this, to him, that is Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. This is a prophetic future, and it hasn't happened yet. This is talking about after the return of Christ. That all men of every language will serve him. Now look what it says. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And it will not pass away. There will never be a re-election. There will never be another king once Jesus returns and sets up shop from Jerusalem. And establishes his earthly kingdom. It will never, ever, ever, never, ever come to an end. His kingdom is everlasting. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Doesn't that give you a good feeling? When Jesus comes to rule the world, when he comes back in the second coming, his feet land on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives cleaves in half east to west. And Jesus sets up his kingdom, judges the world, and sets up his kingdom. It's never, ever, never, ever, ever going to be overthrown by anything evil. It's everlasting. Now, it's almost impossible for us to grasp eternity. Because God created you and me to live in time and space. And for us, everything has a beginning and an ending. I had a beginning. You had a beginning. And you have an ending and I have an ending. Right? The new car you got, it's not going to be so hot in five years. That new house you're getting, it's going to be all worn down one day. Everything in this world is subject to time. And if it's subject to time, it's subject to wear and tear and aging, rusting, rotting, corroding, weakening, withering. Everything except the things of the spirit. The things of the spirit never die. For the things we see will pass away. It's the things we cannot see that are eternal. And, 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 and you as a human being, yes, your, your body right now, one day it's going to die if Jesus doesn't come back. But you have within you an eternal spirit. And that's what makes us unique from all of God's created order. We have an eternal spirit. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So 
since God doesn't live in time, we can't comprehend that he looks down and he sees a million years ago and a million years from now and right now. He is inhabiting eternity, so he sees everything all at once. And that's how he knows the end from the beginning. He knows how something is going to end before the beginning even begins. That's our God. That's why I kind of joke a lot and I say, he never says, well, I'll be. We do. God doesn't. Because whatever you're going to do tonight, he's already there. Where you're going to be a month from now, he's there waiting for you to arrive. That's why he can prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He can step into your future and prepare for your arrival, prepare a blessing, prepare an open door, prepare an anointing, prepare a ministry, prepare whatever good thing he's got for you. He's in your future preparing for you to get there. Amen. I love knowing that, that God's gone ahead of me. You know, when I come to do church on Sunday morning, I'm so glad to know God's already gone ahead of me and prepared the way and set the table for me to get there and do what he already knew I was going to do and you were going to do and we were all going to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen and exactly how he's going to bless because he's there ahead of us preparing a table. God says through Isaiah, the high and the lofty one who lives in eternity. The Holy One says this, I live in the high and in the holy place. I don't live where you live. I live in eternity and I'm just watching time unfold. And I know exactly where the good ship planet earth is going and when it's going to arrive, when my son is going to come and when I'm going to wrap this whole thing up. I know exactly what I'm doing. So our God is Elohim, the uncreated creator that created all things. Amen? Next question. The dead in Christ rise first to meet the Lord in the clouds. Is this our physical body only? I always thought to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. Now we get this question a lot. And in the church, there there just continues to be a, a significant amount of confusion regarding what happens to a Christian after death. Um, and I think because there's so many teachings out there. Some, some people believe in soul sleep. Soul sleep is when a Christian supposedly dies, and they simply sleep in death until the return of Christ when they're resurrected. That's soul sleep. You don't know anything after you die until Christ comes back, and then you're resurrected, and bing, the first conscious thought you have is then. Others, particularly Catholics believe in purgatory, which is a place or a state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are expiating or paying off their sins before going to heaven. That's purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach purgatory. There's no such thing as purgatory. It's not in the holy word of God. Here's what the Bible teaches, that when a Christian dies, their spirit is immediately separated from their body and goes instantly into the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to catch this. I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm quoting straight from Scripture. Paul wrote these words, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. 
Are any of us in heaven right now? No, we're here. We're saved. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, which is a foretaste of heaven. But we're not in heaven right now. He says, as long as I'm in my body, I'm not at home with the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. Now notice what he's saying. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Can we say that together? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Try it one more time. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I've given this illustration many times, but it's worth repeating because so often we we forget it. But I want you to pretend this glove, and for our radio listeners, I have a glove on my hand right now, a work, worker's glove, okay? Leather glove. Now, I want you to pretend the glove is your body. My hand is your spirit. As long as your spirit is in your body, you're alive, and your body is animated. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. All right? You walk to work. You walk around the house, you live and breathe and move and have your being. As long as your spirit is in your body, you're a living, viable human being. But when you die, what the Bible is telling us is your spirit leaves your body. Now, the body, the glove, goes down into the grave. But the spirit goes up into the presence of the Lord. Say it with me again. Absent from the body present with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, their spirit goes into the presence of the Lord, leaving their body and the body goes down into a grave. Now what happens is when the rapture takes place and the trumpet blows and the power of God is exercised to resurrect every single human being that ever placed their faith in Christ, the body is going to be brought out of the grave. You say, well, what if they were uh, cremated? That's no problem with God. God speaks and something comes from nothing. He has no problem with ashes. Besides, don't you know the Apostle Paul? His body is now only ashes wherever it is. Same with Simon Peter and all the apostles and the rest from the first century. Their bodies are somewhere and they're nothing but dust. But the Bible says that the dust shall awake. God's going to bring, even if your body is nothing but dust, God's going to resurrect it. And the Bible says that mortal will put on immortality, that our resurrected bodies will become glorified bodies, and we will receive a glorified body by the power of God instantaneously, just like Jesus' glorified body. And we will be caught up together in the sky, in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, Our spirits that have been in heaven with Jesus will be joined to our resurrected, glorified bodies. And we will be taken into heaven. The rapture is not the second coming. The rapture is different. The rapture is when Jesus comes for his bride, you and me, the blood-washed, spirit-filled, child of God. That's who the rapture is for. The world doesn't know the rapture happened, except that suddenly there's a bunch of people, millions of people, no longer here. 
Say, Jeff, do you really believe that? I absolutely believe it. We have types and shadows in the Old Testament. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not. Because God took him. God raptured him. And we are told that when Elijah was caught up in the chariot of fire, that he was raptured. He was caught up. Harpazo, caught up. That's the Greek word. Harpazo, caught up, snatched off the earth. And they looked for him and they could not find him. That's a type and shadow of what will happen with you and me. They will look for us and they will not find us. Because we will be gone. Because God will snatch us up off the earth in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And when that happens... The, the glove, the body comes out of the grave and it is glorified. We receive a brand new body that can no longer get sick, can no longer feel pain, can no longer be depressed, no longer needs an extra strength, etc. We don't have any more joint pain. We don't have any more cancer. There's no more heart disease because we have a brand new body fitted for heaven. You say, do you really believe that? Absolutely, I believe that. Jesus lifted up his hands, and in front of the disciples, he was taken up into glory and received out of their sight. Elijah was taken up. Enoch was taken up. Philip was raptured and taken from one location to another in the blink of an eye. We have examples in the word of God, types and shadows, where God is showing us this is what it will, what it will be like. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who remain alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So when a born-again believer dies, his soul immediately goes into heaven. And his body goes into the grave. And it will be resurrected one day. Amen? Isn't that good news? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise? One more question, and then we're going to finish tonight. Why doesn't the Bible mention dinosaurs? There's evidence, but the Bible doesn't say it. Why not, or where does it mention it? Well, the Bible does mention dinosaurs. And I wanted to take this question. It was a great question. It was sent to me online. uh, Because there's such an attempt from the time that you and I are little kids going through elementary school to teach us evolution. The minute that you believe evolution, you can't believe the Bible. You can't. Well, how come, Jeff? Because of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth. See, evolution says in the beginning, Evolution created the heavens and the earth. If you believe evolution, you can't believe the Bible. And if you teach your children evolution, they will never fully embrace the Bible. Because evolution undercuts and undermines and destroys the authority of the Bible. Because if Genesis 1-1 isn't right, then how is John 3-16 right? Are you with me? I was raised believing in evolution because that's all I ever heard. I have come to believe that I didn't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian. Okay? I don't believe in evolution. I believe in creation. I believe in a creator God. 
If I didn't believe in a creator or God, the Bible is irrelevant to me. So I must embrace Genesis 1-1. Are you with me, church? I must embrace it. So one of the ways that our children, and they become teenagers, and then eventually we, we hear that they, they left uh, home to go to, to uh, college, and we lost them. They don't believe anymore. They're out living in sin, and they're no longer walking with God, no longer going to church. What happened? Because there were questions moving around in the depths of their soul that were never answered, and church should have answered them. That's why I chose this question. Because dinosaurs are a part of the evolution thing. We're told they lived millions and billions and trillions and quadrillions years ago. And if you believe in dinosaurs, then you can't believe in the Bible because the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. But it does. It doesn't use the word dinosaur because the word dinosaur was created in 1800s. The word dragon seems to be what was used to describe them in ancient times. See, I believe there were dinosaurs, and the Bible talks about them. First, the dinosaurs were no doubt created on the fifth and sixth days. Genesis records that on the fifth day, so God created great sea creatures. That's not talking about little bitty fish. And every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. So along with all the other marine life and bird life, I believe the marine and winged dinosaurs came here on the fifth day. Then on the sixth day, God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and what everybody? Beast of the earth each according to its kind, and it was so. On the sixth day, the land dinosaurs had to have been created. Now, the first dinosaur that we encounter in the Bible is called the behemoth. Behemoth, that just sounds like a dinosaur, right? Job, who was post-flood, Job lived after the flood, describes Behemoth. I want you to look at what he describes. Now, I have a picture of Behemoth uh, that I wanted them to get. There we go. Now, as I describe or read what Job described, I want you to look at this dinosaur here. Look at Behemoth, Job says, which I made along with you. God says, I made him along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Look at the strength of his loins. And the power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree. In the tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are like bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker, catch this everybody, Pay attention to the word now. Only God can draw the sword against him. Only God can go up against him and take him down. Job says, now I didn't read the whole account. You can read the whole account in Job 40. Read the rest of the description because of time I can't. But Job says, 
There was no creature created by God like Behemoth. He perfectly describes something like the Brachiosaurus. And that's what that was. Put him back up there, please. He's describing something like the Brachiosaurus. Skeptics say, well, he's describing a hippo or an elephant. Well, there's a problem with that. A hippo or an elephant, neither one have a tail like a cedar tree. They have little bitty no-count tails. But look at this guy. Just as an example. Now, since Job describes behemoth from a first-hand eyewitness perspective, it must be that man and dinosaurs lived at the same time in history. Evolution denies this because evolution has placed dinosaurs long before the appearance of man. But Job is sitting here describing something that looks like this. No man can take him down. He's humongous. He's a dinosaur. But he's called him behemoth. Now, did you know that nearly every ancient civilization has some sort of art depicting giant reptilian creatures? Did you know that? Now, let's just talk secular history and just just looking back a little bit from a secular viewpoint. Petroglyphs, artifacts, and even little clay figurines found in North America resemble modern depictions of dinosaurs. Rock carvings in South America depict men riding Diplodocus-like creatures. Diplodocus was the longest dinosaur. And amazingly, these depictions bear the familiar images of dinosaurs like Triceratops, the three-horned dinosaur. I was into dinosaurs when I was a kid. Man, I had all the dinosaur toys. I knew all the names. So, so man, this is, this is coming home to me. But I just no longer believe they came from evolution. They came from God. Now, watch this. Pterodactyl, like flying dinosaurs, are found in these depictions from other civilizations. T-Rex, my favorite. Jurassic Park, deep T-Rex, you know. Okay are found in these depictions from ancient civilizations. Why did they draw them, carve them, leave a record of them? Where'd that come from? It came from seeing them. A second dinosaur the Bible mentions is Leviathan, a sea creature. Again, Job himself, post-flood, post-ark, describes him. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you press down his tongue with a cord? He's describing a beast that is too much for a man to handle in any way. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? You can't harpoon him. He's too big, too ferocious, too awesome. Can you get his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him and remember the battle You will not do it again. (laughs) Behold, the hope of a man is false. That's talking about the hope of the man who thinks he can get this guy out of the water, conquer him, capture him, is false. He is laid low even at the sight of Leviathan. No one is so fierce that he dares to even stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? This sea creature was so awesome, so fierce and powerful that no man could catch him. He's describing something like the Elasmosaurus. Let me put him up here. They have found the bones of this creature. 
This is the kind of thing he's describing. Elasmosaurus, a huge, long-necked marine dinosaur. You can't capture him. You can't bring him in. He's too big for a man. He's too awesome, too, too ferocious. It's hopeless if you think you can harpoon him or spear him. Job is giving an eyewitness account of this creature. And I'm just using this as an example of what it might have been. Then next we, we find what's called the dragon, and we're almost done. Ezekiel talks about the dragon. Ezekiel was ordered by God to sing a song about Pharaoh. And God gave Ezekiel the words, quote, You compared yourself to a young lion among the nations, yet you are like the big dragon in the seas. You go through your rivers, troubling the water with your feet and making the rivers muddy. What was the big dragon? Well, it might have been Leviathan. We don't know. But Leviathan in the Hebrew means sea monster. So when Job wrote down Leviathan, he was saying sea monster. So dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible, and they're seen dwelling on earth at the same time as men. Now, I'm only going through this in closing because I want you to know that your Bible can be trusted in every way. It can be trusted theologically. It can be trusted historically. It can be trusted with its information, whether it's about something like the dinosaur, whether it's how to live your life and be right with God. It's account of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the earth. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus raising others from the dead, Paul raising somebody from the dead, Peter raising somebody from the dead, the miracles that were done by Jesus and the apostles, all the things in the Bible, the the ark, Jonah in the great fish, belly of the great fish. Jesus validated all those stories. Your Bible is not a, a book of myth and fables. It's a history book. It's a theology book. It's a philosophy book. It's an accurate book, and you can trust it. Amen? Let's stand together.